Equine health is our business. Horses and education are our passion. Welcome to the EquiConnect podcast. Here, we will have case-based conversation and talk about interesting news and information with the goal of sharing knowledge, focusing on equine health. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the EquiConnect Equine Podcast. Brought to you by McKee Panel Equine Services. I am Dr. Kyle Goldie. And I'm Karen Fell. And today we have a very special episode. So over the course of the spring, in order to try to connect with our clients and everything like that, we ended up doing a series of webinars. And today we'd like to present to you one of the webinars that was recorded. So this is Dr. Sam Molson talking to us today about... Colic. Take it away, Sam. Hi, everyone. My name is Samantha Molson, and we are here this afternoon to talk about colic. So a little bit about me. Um, So I went to the Ontario Veterinary College in Guelph, uh, graduated in 2015, and I went to do my internship uh, in New Jersey at Mid-Atlantic Equine Medical Center. And now I'm back with McKee Pownall in Campbellville. The overview of how we're going to be going through this today. So we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what is colic? What does it mean? Uh, what's involved in our colic patients in the exam um, treatment? Digestive anatomy, because we really feel strongly that this is a big reason why horses are so prone to colic versus other species. Exam um, of the colic patient, really important. I'm sure a lot of you have been present uh, for a colic exam before, kind of reviewing some of those different diagnostics that you might have seen. Treatment options, so we have medical or surgical, um, both kind of with pros, cons, different types of colics that are more apt to be treated with one versus the other. And then prevention, which Full disclosure here, I'm not going to tell you the magic cure to never having a colic in your barn again, but uh, some preventative strategies that we definitely want to be sure we're staying on top of for our horses to minimize the risk as much as possible. So first off, we're going to talk, what is colic? Um, And I know everybody probably has some different background on this different familiarity, depending on your background with horses, what kind of horses you've been used to seeing and working with. Really, colic just means abdominal pain. And really, it's a clinical sign rather than a true diagnosis. So often people kind of ask us, you know, is this colic? Is this truly, I'm not sure if this is actually colic or something similar to colic. And I think this can be tricky because we have a lot of conditions that actually do resemble colic, but aren't true colic episodes. So things that can resemble colic. Laminitis, so a horse that's maybe not acting themselves, might not be eating great lying down because their feet hurt. That's a really common one. Neurologic disease, so you know, a horse with rabies initially, kind of presenting with behavioral changes, things like that. Botulism, a horse that might be kind of shivering and shaking. Pneumonia, uh, just kind of a horse that's breathing heavy, might have a fever. Liver disease, renal disease, just a few things. There's way more to add to this list, but some common conditions that can show similar signs to our true abdominal colic. So just going to start a quick poll here to kind of get the sense of the group. So in this question, I'm asking, which is not a common sign of colic? So A, we have a horse that's pawing. B, we have a horse that's vocalizing or neighing. C, we have a horse lip curling or showing the phlegm in response. And then D, we have a horse lying down. Okay, so we've got kind of a few different feelings here, actually, which is great. That's kind of what I was hoping to see here. So basically what we see here is the top two are vocalizing and phlegm as kind of the main feelings that we think are not a common sign of colic. And these are great. What we we feel pretty confident that pawing and lying down is a common cause, which is great. Those are probably the two most common that um, we have clients call us with. And the answer here is actually vocalizing. So that was the winner, phlegming or the lip curling. So that's kind of a, it's funny how we have certain horses that that might be their only true sign of colic. Um, We know it can mean other things. You know, a horse smells something funny in the air. Maybe oftentimes they'll come and with our gloves, our exam gloves on our hands, and then they'll make this funny phlegm response. It can be used for other things other than colic, but actually that can be a quite a common sign of colic that we can see as well. So moving on, 
So our anatomy of the gastrointestinal system. So it is complicated. And I think this is, like we said, the main reason that horses are so prone to colic um, versus other species. So kind of just starting from the mouth and working our way back. So definitely the oral cavity involving the teeth, the mouth, the esophagus. So very long horses are quite prone to choke as well. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that before. And then we kind of come into the stomach, which actually is pretty small relative to the size of the horse's full GI tract. Um, like we're going to get to, we're going to talk about each of these components in greater detail, but the stomach, it's only one stomach versus four, like you might have in cows. And then we're kind of coming into the small intestine. So kind of the small diameter, um, three different parts there that we'll go through. We've got the large colon. So the large colon and the cecum here are basically what make these horses so amazing of a species, to put it very blankly. So the cecum is a huge comma-shaped structure that we're going to talk about. And the whole purpose of this is trying to absorb nutrients, digest feed. Um, we know that they're fed not meat, but they're herbivores. So kind of all of those different things factor into the design of the GI tract as well. Moving into the small colon, the rectum, and then, of course, out into the environment. So that's kind of our basic passageway, just as a review of basic gastrointestinal anatomy. So going through these parts individually here. So we've got the stomach. So probably if we talk about the horse stomach, the main question everyone's going to have is about ulcers. So we know, like we said, the horse has one stomach, very ulcer prone. The stomach usually holds about eight to 10 liters, depending on the breed and the size of the horse can be up to about 20, but really important to know, especially for us that are going to be giving these fluids via a nasogastric or a stomach tube, horses cannot vomit. And I think this is a big reason that they're so prone to these colic episodes as well is because that esophagus leading into the stomach, there's a very tight sphincter there that will not allow stomach contents to go back up the other way. So it passes easily down into the stomach, but not able to have passage the opposite way, which is why they can't vomit. Also prone, so we have here, we're going to actually go through a short gastroscopy or stomach video, but here we have um, just kind of the basic composition of the horse's stomach. So down at the bottom, the glandular part, so where all of the digestive enzymes, stomach acid, all of that good stuff is being secreted to digest your food have the non-glandular portion, which is kind of the top section, not so much responsible for digestion, but actually really quite prone to stomach ulcers in this top section. And we have a lot of splashing of stomach acid up into this section, which especially in those racehorses, horses that are exercising vigorously. And an interesting division here called the Margo Placatus. So this is kind of separates the two parts of our stomach. Very fancy word. You'll impress people at cocktail parties if you uh, mention the Margot potato. So good one to remember. So gastroscopy. So really common thing that I'm sure at some point you've met a horse that maybe looks suspicious for ulcers, um, might have shown signs like weight loss, kind of a dull, crappy hair coat, um, maybe really girthy, bucking under saddle, um, just kind of prone to colic and loose manure and just not doesn't look like a completely healthy horse. So probably something that we talk about a lot. And I think there are some risk factors we're pretty aware of, you know, having horses that are on busy competition schedules, you know, maybe not a lot of turnout, had quite high concentrated diets, so lots of grain, maybe not as much hay, and intensive training. So I'm going to show a quick video of our gastroscopy. So basically with this procedure, we're using a tiny camera to go down through the horse's nostril, down through their esophagus and into the stomach. And the whole purpose of this is to actually evaluate the whole inside of the stomach to look for ulcers, maybe some masses, maybe some other abnormalities to really diagnose gastric ulcers. Basically just shows the whole procedure of gastroscopy. And I'll kind of just describe it very briefly here. Essentially, it's done with your horse just slightly sedated. They're not anesthetized. They're standing. That little camera, it's a very narrow diameter tube. It's actually much smaller than your standard stomach tube if you've seen a horse tube for colic or something like that. So narrow diameter. Um, that camera will go all the way down into the stomach and you really can look from the entry to the stomach all the way until the exit into the small intestine. So really, it's interesting. You can see quite a few things, ulcers, masses, like we said. Sometimes you see some bot flies in there, which always kind of creep people out, but they're pretty benign and not clinically significant. 
So moving on to the small intestine. So um, a lot of you will remember from school. So the three main parts here, the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. This is um, a horse during colic surgery. And you can see surgeons just kind of going through the small intestine and tracing the whole length of it to be sure there's no blockages, um, changes in colors, narrowing, anything abnormal here. So 15 to 20 meters long, quite long. Digestion, absorption of nutrients is basically the main function of the small intestine. Strangulation. So a lot of people will talk about the small intestine twisting, a really severe type of colic that we'll commonly see actually in older horses. So usually the history is a pretty acute colic, really painful, um, never really been much of a colicky horse ever in their life. And it's because they get these little fatty masses in their abdominal cavity called lipomas. We call it the mesentery. So this big amount of tissue here that can actually allow the small intestine to wrap around these structures. And that's what would happen is actually it, it wraps around and it cuts off the blood flow to the small intestine. And it has a lot of distension of food material and everything moving through behind it. So usually a surgical diagnosis. I don't think anyone can argue that these need anything other than surgery, but a pretty severe type of small intestine, I'll call it. Um, so talking about the cecum next, so the cecum um, is kind of like we had talked about initially. It's a large comma-shaped sac on the right side of the horse's abdomen, and it is quite voluminous. So it can actually hold about 30 liters. It's quite large when you think about the stomach. And the main things that we can actually hear, uh, hear of happening here is impaction of the cecum. So the most common cause of colic in terms of a cecal impaction would be a horse that, for example, a racing thoroughbred, um, you know, is recovering from a uh, type of musculoskeletal fracture, um, maybe a cannon bone or a fetlock fracture, and it's on stall rest. And this is a horse that is not used to being on stall rest that might be in some degree of discomfort from the orthopedic injury that they're recovering recovering from, might have had surgery, might have had anesthesia, all these things can kind of predispose them to something like a sequel infection. And this can actually be quite serious, but because this is such a large structure, you can just keep filling and filling and filling with food. And the horse doesn't seem that uncomfortable until you surpass this 30 liters. And usually when you do feel a sequel impaction, it can be pretty serious because often they're not showing signs of colic until they're about to actually rupture their teeth. So this is um, something not a lot of people deal with uh, cecum-based colics. Usually we're dealing more with large colon, but something that if you hear of people talking about the cecum, is kind of a, a bit of a description as to why that's important and what kind of cases we would see that in most commonly. It can get a little bit gassy through the cecum as well. Definitely not as serious as an impaction of the cecum, but kind of something that's interesting to consider. So the large colon, this would definitely be the most common cause of colic that we deal with, for sure. So much wider than the small intestine, and not as long. And impactions are actually quite commonly here. And the main reason for this is because the large colon, because it has to fit inside the horse, it actually will have what we call flexures or bends in it, where it will kind of bend back over on itself. And at these, we call them flexures, at these flexures, we have a narrowing of diameter here. So you have kind of this nice, wide, large colon, and at these flexures, it gets narrowed. And then that's where we have blockages really, really common in those areas. The large colon can, of course, become displaced. I'm sure a lot of people have dealt with displacements of the colon, either to the left or the right. Seems to be some horses are more predisposed to going one way or the other, but it, it's not always definitive. Colitis is really common too. We get called to a lot of colitis or diarrhea cases. Usually we have the large colon being responsible for that. It's kind of being the part of the GI tract that's going to actually absorb water. If the colon is inflamed, it's not able to do its job properly. And that's when you tend to get a lot of that external loose manure, diarrhea, fever. The horse might be a little bit colicky as well, usually around passage of manure like this too. So large colon is a really big player in our colic cases for sure. So talking a little bit here... So this is actually a really interesting 
type of colic that we see. And I wanted to do a separate slide on this particular condition because we have a lot of horses that get diagnosed with this. And I find a lot of our clients have never heard of this before and sometimes have a hard time understanding exactly how and why this is happening. So with our nephrosonic entrapment, once again, along with the Margot placatus, it's a fancy word. But what's happening here is the large colon is actually moving to the left side of the horse and it becomes trapped in a space between the kidney and the spleen. So we call it the nephrosplenic space. Um, and it's a potential space that usually doesn't have anything in it. And there's this really broad ligament that attaches between the kidney and the spleen. So the colon will often get a little bit gassed up, will move up and over. So it hooks over this ligament. And when this happens, we can have horses that are severely colicky or maybe just mildly colicky. It depends a little bit on is the colon standard with food? Is it heavy? Are there other things going on at the same time? Is there an impact maybe behind entrapment? So kind of mild to severe uh, clinical signs with this case. We don't really know exactly why this happens. There's been a lot of studies done because it does seem like similar horses tend to develop this over and over again. If your horse does have this once, it doesn't mean that they're going to have a lifetime of this type of colic. They can get other colics. They can never colic again, but it does tend to be that a large majority of these guys will be prone to developing this type of colic. And really kind of what we feel is that there's potentially a bigger space in certain horses than others, a change in different GI motility in some horses versus others. People tend to say that the taller geldings may be slightly predisposed, but we see it in ponies, we see it in mares. So I think more research is needed to definitively say that. A treatment that we'll often use for this is a medication called phenylephrine. So similar to epinephrine, um, kind of in that same drug class. And how this medication works is it actually shrinks the spleen. So by shrinking the spleen just transiently, the spleen will go back to normal. It lasts about 15 to 20 minutes, and it actually will allow for more space between the spleen and the kidney. So by shrinking the spleen, there's more space. The colon can swap back down into where it's supposed to be, and then the horse can kind of resume its normal life after that. So phenylephrine, it sounds like a magical treatment. Why wouldn't we just do this on every single horse? It's not without its risks, and we always want to be sure that clients are aware of these risks prior to giving this. If given in older horses specifically, there is a very slight risk that it can cause hemorrhage. So we'll increase blood pressure by using this drug. And actually, because the older horses tend to have more fragile blood vessels, they're at a little bit of an increased risk. So definitely something that, you know, it's a great treatment and has good success, but we want to be sure that we're using it on the right cases and, you know, kind of being aware of possible side effects. Uh, For these horses, like we discussed, Um, The ones that tend to get this type of colic frequently, they can actually do a standing surgery, which is pretty awesome because they can actually sort of remove this potential space. So a standing procedure, usually done laparoscopically, and we call it a surgical ablation. So something that, you know, if your horse has had this many times in a year, it's just getting frustrating, can't seem to get this managed with other different treatments and strategies, definitely a good thing to consider. Uh, small colon. So moving on to, as we're kind of coming towards the end of the GI tract, so fairly short, three and a half meters long, absorbing water in the final stages, concentrating waste. When we become impacted, we can get small colon impactions. I would say they're much less frequent than our large colon impactions, but can still happen. Um, there is a bit of a link to salmonella with the small colon impactions as well. It can be something that we see more in horses with those conditions. So if you have a horse that does develops a small colon impaction, often we recommend testing them for salmonella as well. Um, And then the rectum. So the biggest things here, definitely masses and rectal tears. So kind of our last stage passage for manure, gray horses especially will be really prone to melanomas in this region and tears from our own palpation, straining for horses that have these recurrent impactions and even post-folding. So definitely less common, but something that we don't want to forget So the clinical signs of colic. So that video, you'll see a horse kind of showing a few of those signs, really aggressively pawing the ground, um, trying to lie down, trying to get up, really agitated. And I think, you know, we have have a lot of people that 
you, they have a pretty good idea of how their horse normally acts. There's a difference between, you know, the feed carts coming down the aisle, the horse is standing at the front of their stall, pawing, super excited to be fed. We have people call us and say, okay, the horse is pawing, but it's feeding time. There's a lot going on. We kind of know that's different than an aggressive pawing at the back of the stall out of nowhere when that's not typical for your horse. So kind of knowing your horse's normal behavior is really important in terms of being able to identify when something's not normal. So we have kind of on our clinical signs here, so we have mild, so quiet, maybe not themselves, just don't seem like they've got the same attitude as usual. Moderate, we've got pawing, trying to roll sweating, and severe. So the severe horses are the ones that crashing, unable to stay standing, really quite agitated when we talk to the clients on the phone and a safety risk for everybody as well. So when to call the vet, really anytime, um, anytime you have a horse showing any signs of colic, we always recommend giving us a call, um, even to just kind of chat through what you're noticing. Um, and we can kind of help triage whether we think the horse needs to be seen immediately. You know, do we have, you give them a dose of banamine, maybe take them for a walk or a lunge and then kind of touch base in an hour. So feel free to, if your horse is showing any signs, you're more than welcome to give us a call to discuss. In terms of giving banamine, we have a lot of um, owners and trainers that maybe the horse is prone to these types of episodes. So the one thing we would always stress is if you're going to give a dose of banamine, we try to recommend only giving one. And if the horse's signs recur, we really feel that they need to be reassessed. Another important thing to mention is when you give the banamine, you want to be sure that you take your horses off feet, which I know this can sound a little bit counterintuitive, but if we keep giving banamine, they're going to feel better. Banamine is definitely a powerful unsaid in that they're going to look brighter. They're going to have an increased appetite, but if they've got something like an impaction sitting in there, essentially the banamine can also mask the signs and make the problem worse. So we often say a short period of time off feed just to be sure that things have worked through and then we can gradually reintroduce feed again. So kind of a good thing to keep in mind while waiting for the vet. So we always recommend taking away the horse's food, uh, especially if you've given them banamine and we're, you're waiting for us to get there. We try to not have them roll um, as much as we possibly can. If they're going to lie quietly in their stall, that's totally fine. But of course, hand walking only if it is safe. If the horse is rolling and thrashing in their stall, really just safety is can't be overemphasized here because they're they wouldn't do anything to hurt you normally, but they're not the pain can be so strong that they aren't even aware. They're really emphasizing safety there. So examination of the colic patient. So kind of these are, this is going to be our stepwise approach to diagnosing and treating our horses. So obtaining a relevant history, our physical exam, um, pain management. So a few different strategies there. Rectal palpation, really important diagnostic. Nasogastric intubation, which actually is our passage of the tube. Abdominal ultrasound blood work and abdominal centesis, you might be starting to see this a little bit more commonly, especially abdominal ultrasound as we have it so readily available um, with most equine vets now these days. So just an idea of our history. So if you've been involved in a colic exam before, you've probably been asked these questions and there's quite a few that could maybe give us some hints as to what type of colic it is, any risk factors, anything that we can maybe change or avoid going forward to minimize this happening again. I would say that in a lot of these situations, there really aren't any obvious changes or, you know, recent vaccines or recent changes to show schedule, exercise schedule. Oftentimes we have no idea why this has happened, but if there's anything that can kind of give us any hints, we want to be sure that we are talking about them and trying to minimize the risk going forward. Um, our physical exam. So if the horse is standing comfortably, I really emphasize the use of the distance exam. So really just standing back, not going in the horse's stall, just watching them from a distance and seeing, are they picking up feet? Are they interested in eating? Are they repeatedly lying down and getting back up again and showing agitation? What are they doing? And this is really important too, especially after giving banamine. Have they improved from banamine? Are they 100% now? Do they seem about 25% improved, so really important sometimes to just stand back and watch. Our vital parameters, so our temperature, pulse, and respiration, really important. Um, often these guys can have a fever, an elevated uh, heart rate, and respiratory rate. Their vitals might even be normal, so that can kind of clue us in as to the severity of the colic we're dealing with. The mucous membranes, or their gums, so color, 
moisture? Are they tacky? Are they really dry? And does the color refill? So the capillary refill time. We want that to kind of tell us a little bit about hydration status. Hydration, we're also looking for a visible skin tent. When we put pressure on their jugular, does the vein raise normally? Feet, like I said, laminitis can show some colic signs as well. Tying up, are they getting around in their stall okay? Do they seem sore? A lot of the times if they have a high fever, they can also develop laminitis. So definitely want to pay attention to their feet. Uh, Are GI sounds and any other abnormalities? So are there abrasions? Has the horse maybe been rolling around in its stall and it's got some little like skin lacerations or wounds on it? Are they really distended through their abdomen? Do they look almost like a balloon on one side? Kind of just important things to pay attention to there. Pain management. So I think everybody knows banamine. I'm sure people have had to give that at one point or another. Um, The other thing that's really important when we talk about pain management is sedation. And we have a lot of clients kind of ask us a little bit about this too, because with a lot of human sedatives, especially the opioids, we know that it can decrease gut motility, which often if we're dealing with a colic, we want to promote gut, gut motility and not have decreases there. So this is something that it's a great question and it makes total sense. And it's something that because these sedatives also have some analgesic in it, we want it for another source of pain management. Uh, we want to relax the horse. We want to decrease the spasm to allow things to resume again. So these sedatives are fairly short acting. Um, I'll also mention that ACE promazine does not actually have analgesic in it. So these other sedatives that we commonly use do, but ACE is actually, it's just going to decrease anxiety. It doesn't actually have any analgesic or pain relief in that specific sedative. Buscopan may or may not be used depending on the horse and the situation. Buscopan actually does a great job of reducing spasm. GI spasm, it's short acting, so it's not going to be in their system for very long, but it's going to do a good job of kind of allowing everything to settle and to allow GI motility to return to normal. So we have a lot of horses if we go in to do our rectal palpation, will they be straining hard against us during that exam? And we want to be sure that we minimize the risk of uh, rectal tear and we want to get a good idea of what's going on internally. So we'll sometimes give that as well to just reduce straining and facilitate the exam. So going on to the rectal palpation, so usually it's going to be the first thing we're going to do after our physical. Um, So adequate sedation or restraint, you know, some people will, the the horse might need a a twitch or a lip chain or maybe some positive reinforcement. Uh, We often will have the horse kind of positioned in a way that we can get out of the way quickly and kind of protect ourselves. Uh, So really the only things that we're trying to really figure out here is which part of the GI tract is affected. Are we dealing with a large colon problem, a small colon problem? How severe is it? Can we feel a lot of gas distension? Are we able to even feel around? Or is there just so much gas buildup that we don't even know what's going on? What's the process? Are we dealing with gas and impaction, masses? How concerned do we have to be about this type of colic? Let's say that major limitation with our rectal palpation is, of course, the fact that we're really only able to feel about a third of the GI tract. So, you know, we have some very large, maybe like your 17-3 big heavy horses that we're trying to palpate and definitely probably feeling less than a third, depending on the length of your arm, whereas some smaller ponies were probably able to feel a bit more. But really, we kind of we're not able to feel the stomach. We're not able to feel things very far forward in the abdomen. So there are limitations there for sure. These are just a few little diagrams of kind of what we'll feel in relation to how things are sitting. So what we have here is the gas in the cecum. So a a form of gas colic here. So this big comma-shaped structure. And you can feel, if you were to actually feel that with your hand, it would almost feel like you're up against a balloon. So fairly soft, but definitely feels gas-filled. Similar to one, that's a really good analogy to understand what you're feeling. Large colon impaction. So kind of really common, like we said, we've got the large colon kind of sitting along the bottom of the abdomen here. This is actually what we call the pelvic flexor. So where the large colon is going to turn on itself, probably the most common place that we see impaction. So what this would feel like is you can feel feed material just sitting inside that colon It can be very rock hard, really serious, much more serious than a soft indentable impaction. So we're really trying to pay attention to how does it feel texture wise. 
how big is it? Is it the size of a football, two footballs, three footballs? Can we not feel where it even ends? Because that's going to tell us a little bit about what kind of treatment the horse is going to need. Um, small intestinal distension. So definitely a more serious form of colic when we feel almost like blown up sausages that we can kind of feel all clustered in the abdomen. Um, this would have you really suspicious for that strangulating lipoma around that mass like we talked about in older horses and something that we would be much more concerned about versus just um, a little bit of gas distension. So something that we don't like to feel, but is not uncommon, unfortunately. So going on to our nasogastric intubation. So really, really helpful for both diagnosis and treatment. So I'm sure most people have seen this be done before. Usually the horse is lightly sedated. Some are great without sedation. Pass the tube through nostril down into the stomach. Really important uh, few things that are done here is we're really paying attention to what do the stomach gases smell like? Does it smell like very sour and foul? Do we get a lot of gross fluid back off the stomach? So sometimes these horses, there's a lot of fluid backing up into the stomach because we've got a blockage further downstream and we pass the tube in and we get a ton of fluid instantly. So we can fill almost half of a water bucket. When we get a lot of extra reflux back, so the word we use for that is reflux, we're often concerned that it's going to be more challenging to treat this horse. And the reason for that is if we're getting a lot of extra fluid back from the stomach, it makes it really hard for us to give medications to the stomach without them just becoming uncomfortable and passing it back. So um, a few different medications we can give through this tube if the horse does not have this extra reflux that we talked about. Um, plain water, uh, electrolytes, or Epsom salts. So probably for me, that's definitely the most common thing that I'm using via the tube. Really great for impactions, just rehydrating the horse. Antigas is a common one as well, kind of a nice mint-smelling green liquid. I'm sure a lot of people have seen that used before. Really helpful for kind of decreasing gas accumulation. Mineral oil was probably a little bit more common uh, many years ago. It's still used as well now, but I would say it's maybe less popular. I think we've learned a lot about mineral oil in that um, it's really useful as a transit marker. So when we see it coming out the hind end, we know things are passing through, but it often can make it harder to fix impactions with mineral oil because it can actually coat the impaction and make it harder for it to break up. So I think we've learned quite a bit about mineral oil and we want to be selective in which cases we're tubing them to. Uh, Pepto-Bismol and Biosponge. So really good treatments for those horses with diarrhea that are sick. So your standard Pepto-Bismol that humans can take quite a bit more of it. And the bottom sponge does great for kind of just relaxing the stomach and helping minimize the uh, consistency of the manure. Sometimes we give nothing. So if we have a lot of that extra fluid coming back, sometimes just taking that fluid off the stomach makes the horse more comfortable. But we don't, of course, want to give them more into the stomach if they're giving that back. So really important that um, everyone's safety is maximized during tubing because we have a lot of horses, it's a little ticklish as it's passing through. We make sure that the tube has a little bit of um, a lidocaine gel on it just to try to numb it and make it a little bit more comfortable. Um, but definitely something that you want to be sure you have a good handler, someone that's comfortable holding the horse um, and have a good discussion about how that's going to go prior to starting. Abdominal ultrasound. So that's going to tell us a little bit about the area of GI tract affected, severity and prognosis. Really easy to do, just kind of our standard uh, tendon or repro ultrasound machine. The horse doesn't have to be sedated for it. It's not uncomfortable. It's not invasive. And we're actually able to highlight the parts of the GI tract, especially that we can't feel on rectal. So it's going to tell us a little bit, are things moving well? Do we see any free fluid in the abdomen that would maybe make us concerned that there's something inflammatory going on there? Are there any masses hiding there that could be precipitating the colic episode? Um, and really paying attention to the appearance of the organs themselves. If we pop our ultrasound probe on your horse's stomach, so this would usually be, be right underneath their stomach, further back, kind of towards their groin inguinal area. So we can actually take measurements of the size of the diameter of these loops of small intestine. And when we're ultrasounding, we want to see, are they contracting? Because really the small intestine should never stop contracting and moving. I love ultrasound personally, and I think we can learn so much by doing this diagnostic on our colicking horses in the field. Usually when we talk about our nephrospinic entrapments, when we usually pop the ultrasound, uh, try to find this kidney on the left side, often we can't even see it because we've got colon in that space 
kind of blocking our view of the kidney. So nice to be able to just put your ultrasound on and find the left kidney and know that that's not what you're dealing with. Uh, blood work. So blood work is not something that we're always doing on our colics. For me, I definitely want to recommend blood work if the horse has a fever, diarrhea. Um, we want to know, you know, is this something consistent with Potomac horse fever? Is it going to require other treatment, antibiotics? Or if we have a horse that's just not coming around to our traditional treatment, because we can have colicky horses with renal disease that we might not see externally or liver disease too. So definitely want to do our CBC and biochemistry, so our standard wellness blood work. Serum amyloid A can be useful too to kind of tell us a little bit about inflammation within the body and lactate, which usually if we see an elevated lactate on your horse, we're a little concerned that something is quite diseased um, and not healthy in the abdomen. So something that you may or may not have seen before, I would say it's not super common. Only if your horse goes to a referral center, they'll do that on admission, but um, something that we'll do in some not traditional cases. And then our belly tap. So abdominocentesis, we can do this in the field. Um, they'll do this at referral centers quite commonly as well. Really try to collect some abdominal fluid for sampling. You know, horses that have had a GI rupture, sometimes we can do this and see feed material or blood if maybe they've been, they've had a significant trauma or something like that. So looking at some lab parameters here, definitely not a common thing, but something that we'll do if we're suspicious of cancerous processes too. Um, we might actually see some cancerous cells when we look at this under the microscope. So quickly on treatment here, this is a horse being hooked up to IV fluids, um, somewhere like OVC, and you can see that they have a really long coil set here. And the, the benefit of this long coil is that it actually allows the horse to walk freely around the stall. They don't have to be tied up. Um, they can put their head down. They can, they can lie down. They can get back up again. It's not going to pull the catheter out. So that's kind of why they have a very specific oil setup here. They've got two bags hanging just to really try to get this horse hydrated as soon as possible. Like we said, NSAIDs, banamine, definitely preferred over bute or provocox, the sedation, the buscopan, oral fluids via our stomach tube, IV fluids, um, off-feed and exercise. So this is kind of your standard medical type of treatment. So when to refer, um, and this is something we're asked often, how do I know if my horse needs to go to a hospital? Are they going to get better here? Do I need to be hooking up the trailer? What can I expect? And I think our diagnostics are very helpful. They'll tell us a lot about the process and what we can expect. But the main reason for referral is if your horse is showing consistent signs of pain despite our treatment. Um, and that kind of tells us that there's something more serious going on. Maybe they just need IV fluids because they're really dehydrated and they have a big impaction. But this is kind of our main criteria on when we need to be referring horse. So what to expect? So usually when we're talking about referral, um, they're going to go somewhere like OBC in our area right now. Um, they're going to do the initial colic workup on admission. Um, medical and or surgical. So we often get asked, oh, well, do you think my horse needs surgery? Why do you want my, me to send my horse there? Um, and it's actually quite rare that our horses that we refer go to surgery. But the benefits of referral is that the horse is watched 24-7. They can get treatment around the clock, IV fluids for sure. It's hard for us to give enough in the field um, when they need to be on that 24-7 and having someone to watch them at all times. And you're close to the surgical facility in case anything needs to happen on that front. So a rough idea of cost. So usually about 1500 to 3000 plus minus, depending on a few days and the amount of IV fluids given. Surgical treatment, usually looking closer to upwards of 5000 Of course, variable based on hospital, surgeon procedures done and everything like that, but kind of just ballpark figures. So colic surgery, really quickly. So it used to always be said that um, horses never survived colic surgery. They did really poorly. There's no point in even trying to do colic surgery. And I think, you know, even back in the 80s, um, the survival rates were 30 to 50 percent. So not great. And now with kind of um, intensive monitoring, different medications, um, we've been able to actually increase that to about 80 to 95 percent in the recent literature, which is great. These horses, other than just going through surgery, they require intensive management post-operatively. So that's really important. It's not like your horse can have colic surgery and come home the next day or two. Usually they're there about five to 10 days after surgery, just depending on you know, the owner's comfort level with 
after care and how the horse is doing post-surgery. Usually kind of every surgeon is a bit different in their aftercare, but usually you're looking at 30 days stall rest, three months off riding. Usually they have a big incision underneath their abdomen there that needs time to heal and become strong again. Um, But it does depend on the surgeon and the type of procedure performed. So colic prevention really quickly. We know routine exercise, really important, helps to minimize gas buildup, promotes healthy and good GI motility. Good quality hay, uh, clean, fresh water, minimizing any changes to their daily routine as much as possible. We know horses don't like changes. They like the routine, uh, regular deworming and vaccines, and routine dental care. So these are kind of pretty standard things, and I'm sure most people are aware of these as good colic prevention strategies. We have a lot of horses that don't do well with weather changes. We don't know why that makes horses colic, but just different things to kind of know the horse that you're dealing with. And what um, common risk factors, maybe it's something that whenever the weather drops, maybe they don't drink as much that day. And that's something that we can kind of work towards changing as much as we possibly can. None of these are perfect strategies. We have perfectly maintained horses at our practice that colic frequently for no known reason. So I think these are just good things that we can control and we can be aware of. And that's everything. So um, we have some time for questions. Should banamine always be available in emergency kit just in case required? So I think this is a great question. And I think it's really, it's really relevant to our talk today. And my feeling is that I don't know that every owner in a barn needs to have it, but I definitely feel that there should be a supply at the barn that can be given in case of emergency. You know, we have a few, a lot of our banamine when we dispense it to a client will last usually a few years on the expiration date, which is great. Um, And I think it's important that the barn has a supply. Somebody at the barn, um, you know, if each owner wants to have a dose or two, I think that's totally fair, but definitely something to have on hand and one way that works best for the barn and the borders, I think is definitely a great idea. We do have some horses that can become dangerously painful even in the hour that we're on our way. And I think if there's something that can kind of keep them up and keep them and the owner safe, I think that's really helpful. So I think I think that's a great question and something definitely worth having a plan with the barn manager and the boarders and you know what's the easiest way for that situation. Okay, so our next question is what spot in the GI tract is colic most serious? And I think this is a great question as well. And I think probably after listening to the conversation, I think most of you will probably have a better idea where we're pretty aware that the small intestine tends to be more serious than the large colon. It's not for sure. It doesn't mean that your small intestine always needs surgery and your large never does. It's definitely something that every case is a little bit different, but our our small intestinal cases tend to worry us a little bit more than our large colon. So I hope that helped answer your question. So how common is it for young horses, six to 10 months old, to colic and what are the causes? So that's a great question. And I think we actually could probably add a section on young horses because I know we talked a little bit about some older horses and the strangulating lipomas, but young horses, we definitely have a lot of people that kind of assume that only full grown horses get colic um, and that it's really rare for young horses to get it. And actually we can see quite a lot of colic episodes in these younger horses. And I think in that age range of six to 10 months old, I think that basically probably the biggest causes of colic in that age group would be parasites. So a lot of these guys will get roundworms, you know, inappropriate deworming protocols where we can kind of cause rapid parasite die off right off the bat. And then that can, that can be quite serious because it can actually cause uh, an impaction colic. So that would be the biggest kind of the main main reasons that we would see young horse colic, they can actually get some own, some of their own diseases that are more common in that age group. So Lawsonia would be common in that age group in terms of just being a common cause of colic in that group where we have sort of inflammation in the intestine, often small intestine, um, often those guys, some, some can have diarrhea and fevers as well. So definitely there's reasons that a horse in that age group could be colicky and very different than your adult horses. It's really rare for an adult horse to have a impaction colic from roundworm burden. So stuff like that, definitely be looking at parasites for sure. 
best anti-gas you prefer to use? So we have kind of a generic anti-gas that we order from our vet purchasing supply. Um, and I think it's actually called anti-gas. I don't think there's like a specific name for it. And I would say we have a lot of um, clients that will give them some via oral syringe. And I, I don't think that's wrong. I think sometimes I question whether they're, whether we're able to give them enough via oral syringe um, versus us kind of tubing them with it. Because we'll usually give them a liter or so via our uh, stomach tube. Um, I think giving them, you know, 60 or 120 mils with an oral syringe as we're on the way, it's not going to hurt anything. I would just be careful with any oral medication. Um, if they're really fighting and fussing and throwing their head up, you don't want them to aspirate the anti-gas. That's kind of the one caveat. It's the same with any oral medications, just being careful that they're not throwing their head around and not going to aspirate that. Is banamine um, always given IM? If so, can you review administration technique? And then I have another question actually that's kind of similar to this, banamine oral or injectable. So kind of tying these two together, uh, it's really, really important that banamine actually is only given via IV or oral. So we actually don't ever recommend giving it intramuscularly. There are a lot of people that have done this before and have gotten really lucky and that nothing happened. And that's been the way that they've always given it. But we really recommend giving it IV or orally. And the reason for this is if this medication is given in the muscle, it can actually cause quite a serious, serious reaction in the muscle. So almost like we call it a myositis where the muscle can kind of slough off and get really, really irritated. And it's something that can require pretty serious hospital visit where we have to actually open up the muscle to expose it to air. So we actually saw a case when I was in my fourth year at OVC, we saw a case that was uh, quite a long recovery period from an intramuscular banamine injection. So um, with this, we always say if there is someone qualified to give it intravenous, that's great. It can be really irritating if banamine goes outside the vein. So if it's a horse that's maybe not the best with IV injections, maybe moving your head around, we kind of say, okay, just give it to them orally. If there's any question that they're not comfortable giving it IV, then even the injectable form can be given orally. So you can just give that same, you know, 10 mils for your standard 500 kilo horse, give it right orally like you would with a dewormer. And can be a bit bitter tasting. Sadly, I know this from getting it in my mouth a few times. So if they salivate a little bit, they're not having an allergic reaction. It's just, it's a bit bitter. So something, we have a paste form, which sometimes people have an easier time giving because they don't notice that salivation afterwards. I hope that answered that question. So are mares more prone to gas colic? And if yes, is it connected to their hormonal cycles? So great question. I think we do have some mares that, I don't know that I would say they're more prone to gas colic than stallions or geldings, but I definitely, we definitely see mares that can get crampy and uncomfortable related to their hormonal cycles. And usually um, this happens when the most common situation would be if they are in heat and they're a little bit crampy and uncomfortable and they might have a big follicle kind of sitting on their ovary that can be a bit um, reactive even when we're doing our rectal palpation we take a feel of the reproductive tract as well we might notice okay they're a bit reactive over this left ovary we ultrasound them and there's a massive follicle sitting there that needs to ovulate and go away so that can definitely make them uncomfortable with quite a few horses that you know every 21 days they start to get a little crampy so those guys we tend to manage their heat cycles usually something like regimate kind of see if we can take the discomfort out there so yeah i think that's a great question and something that mare owners should be aware of because it can definitely be make them a little bit colicky and not themselves what about banamine for horses with ulcers so good question um we know horses with ulcers or more sensitive stomachs we try to avoid NSAIDs in these guys for sure because it can precipitate the gastric ulcers it can make them worse even horses that are treated with NSAIDs like butyrbanamine for a long time can definitely induce ulcers. So we're always really careful with these guys. If a horse is really colicky and needs the banamine for comfort, you know, we always try to use the lowest dose that we can to make them more comfortable. Often we'll give Gastrogard or Omeprazole at the same time if we can and for a few days after just to try to minimize the risk as much as possible. But I do feel for some of these guys, if they're really acutely colicky and in a lot of pain and our sedation and our other treatments aren't working, sometimes we're forced to have to give them something for the discomfort and just kind of 
cover our bases as much as we can for those guys. I think we've got one last question here. So can certain types of hay or pasture forage trees cause colic? Good question. I think we used to, I know in certain parts of the world, so there can definitely be like, we can see a lot of sand colics for horses that are kind of grazing on sandy lots, thinking more like Florida. Um, There can be some different types of hay that can definitely induce more gas than others. You know, newer cuts of hay, for example, or, you know, alfalfa versus Timothy. We have a lot of horses that will, you know, eat straw and silly things like that, um, or be grazing on tree bark and kind of might not be having ample food in their paddock. So they're kind of trying to scavenge and eat more debris and kind of vegetative things versus others that can definitely cause impaction. So we always kind of recommend for those horses, if we can kind of change their paddocks or ensure they have good sources of hay in their paddocks so they don't feel like obligated to try to graze off that vegetation. Um, And with any hay switches, you know, moving from a first cut to a second cut, doing so gradually, mixing the hay so you're not having one dramatic change from one to the other. Okay, I think this is our last question that we've got here. Do you recommend a regular treatment of probiotics to prevent ulcers? So um, probiotics, it's a great question. And I think there's a lot of great probiotic companies out there, a lot of great... um, some people that have had better luck with one company versus another, I think there's a lot of great ones. And I kind of like to recommend a list to my clients and then for them to kind of reach out to the reps and do their own research on that. In terms of probiotics with preventing ulcers, that link isn't quite as established. I think um, in the human literature, there's a lot of research on probiotics, whereas in the equine literature, there's not as much research behind um, the use of probiotics yet. I think it's going to be a major um, topic over the next few years. And it's something that, you know, definitely we have researchers at Guelph and in North America working on right now. But in terms of probiotics preventing ulcers, I don't feel like there's as much of a link that way because we have a lot of the probiotics are working more on the hindgut, on the colon, on the cecum versus on the stomach specifically. So usually when we're talking about um, preventing ulcers, we're kind of looking more at, you know, if, we, if we're if we worried about ulcers, um, you know, if we can scope them, that's great. Um, or we can say, okay, let's treat them with an omeprazole for a month or a sucralfate or one of those ulcer medications um, as to try to treat what we think is going on in their stomach. Or we could take something, there's a lot of great supplements out there that are really great to kind of just do preventative ulcer care on these horses long-term. Okay, guys. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you joining me today. And if there's any additional questions that you'd like answered, please feel free to email um, at info at mpequine.com. Enjoy your day. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship.